Welcome back to Stranger Things Things with Jacob and James. I'm Jacob. And I'm James. Each week we dissect Stranger Things episode by episode to find the magic behind the Netflix hit show. With that in mind, let's get started. Alright, so the first episode ends with the boys finding Eleven in the woods. Now, Mike, Dustin, and Lucas figure out what to do with her in Mike's basement. And the boys kind of show their age at this point. You know, they're kind of balking at Eleven's move to like undress in front of them she definitely doesn't pick up on a whole lot of social cues uh and mike shows that he's definitely the most mature of the group so while dustin's dwelling in the fact that a girl almost got dressed in front of him and lucas tries to elicit confrontation and fear mike is scrambling to find out like what to actually do in this situation and he also nicknames her l i actually noticed that on the netflix description for the episode they still refer to her as just they talk to the girl they found in the woods which is kind of a nice way to be to keep her role going kind of on the outside because if it immediately gives her a name then you know it's going to become a, a meaningful character but at this point i guess you you don't know for certain right so that's kind of what's going on the boys are kind of stuck in this situation where they now have this uh very soggy girl in mike's basement and you know they're still trying to figure out what happened to their friend Will Byers. It's uh, it's a great it's one of my favorite starts to an episode because the like it, even though there's been a break since the last time we were here and in theory like you might shut off and walk away or come back like it, it picks up almost immediately after we last left the group just long enough for them to get back to the house and there's that great moment where Elle is going to change her clothes in front of them and they're like no 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 like there's <laughs> there's there's a little bit of their innocence kind of comes through in this moment and their uh misunderstanding of kind of the world at large like how they feel the world is going to react to this moment like they they almost feel like they're going to get in trouble if they're caught having been outside of the house as if their parents would completely overlook the fact that they found a girl <laughs> in the woods who's not really wearing anything and they would just be mad at them like it just kind of shows the uh, the nature of innocence and youth yeah, there's another moment in this scene where, you know, after she tries to undress and they're like, no, 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 go in the bathroom, Mike goes to shut the door and she's like, oh, hell no. Um, so, I, you know, you're kind of like, what's what's going on here? Is this just like a claustrophobic thing? Is this just like a separation anxiety sort of thing? But you're not entirely sure. But, uh, you know, she says no. You know, so again, she's sticking with the one word answers for now, um, which just kind of makes her a little bit more strange to the boys and uh and yeah so what's what else is going on outside of the the house we've got joyce and jonathan who are still distraught over the loss of their family member and it looks like they're planning to make some posters yeah they're gonna make posters and there's a nice scene where joyce is looking for the money to pay for the posters like the whole like there's there's nothing about the visual representation of this family of the buyer family that makes you think they have money but the show kind of really hammers home how little money they have in this episode like it, they're they're definitely a family that is in the worst financial straits of any other character in the series yeah they definitely have enough to keep food on the table it seems that jonathan and joyce work very hard to do that and i think jonathan really likes making breakfast but they're definitely not well off no, and I think that's important because that's that's one of those recurring themes in '80s horror movies and thrillers, and even thrillers today. That it's rarely, it's rarely the uh, astute, well-off people. It's always someone that's kind of struggling and stumbles upon something awful. 
it's 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 another one of those nice tropes that kind of call back to the era where the story comes from. Like it's important that you feel relatable to these characters. Yeah, I agree with that. And so while they're doing this, uh, Hopper shows up and Joey shows him the fried phone, and he's just like, "Well, you know, it's probably from the electrical storm." And she's like, "What? Like, aren't you listening to me?" And he's trying. She's trying to explain to him that she heard her son on the phone, and really all she heard was breathing, and there's this really succinct moment where she, you kind of just had to like recoil and just go oof because she says, you don't think I know my son's, my own son's breathing. You don't think you would know your own daughters. And that kind of hurts because we learned at the end of the last episode that Hopper's daughter died in some fashion. So it, you know, it's the reason that he drinks. It's the reason that he's popping pills, I'm assuming. And, uh, it's a sore spot and she just dug her finger right into it. Yeah. There is the mystery to how Hopper's daughter died, but the way that she addresses it here, I think tells us that it's not, there's no great mystery to how she died, obviously, because, because if there was something where there was kind of an aloofness to what happened, I think she wouldn't be so crass, but because there, there's definitely some finite explanation she, she doesn't think twice to say this awful thing. And it's not that it's not awful, but like, like if her if his daughter had gone missing years before or something like that, I think we wouldn't get a line of dialogue like this. Like this tells us that she understands that this will cut deep and that it's okay to say this thing, at least in her mind. So and what I do you think actually happened to her? Do you think she was sick? Do you think she was killed in an accident of some kind? Well, you know, I've watched this episode like three times now, and I think the first time I watched it, I thought maybe he was just a bad dad because we've kind of gotten these elements that tell us Hopper's in a bad mental space where I was like, maybe he's just estranged from his family. Uh-huh. But then, you know, we, we do learn that she's actually dead. And I don't know. I, I feel like it's, it's, it's one of those things. And I think disease is obviously the most likely. It's one of those things where the fact that he is somebody who spends his life saving people or protecting people wasn't able to do that for his own daughter. And that's where the demons that haunt Hopper kind of stem from. Hmm. It's interesting. I'm looking forward to finding out more about his story because, like you said in the past, I think he's one of the more interesting characters in the show. So we'll see. I'm sure they'll expose more and more of that as the series goes on. But I wanted to point out this one little thing, and I'm not sure if it's a mistake or, or what, but there's a moment where Joyce calls 911 again. I think this is maybe later in the episode, and she talks to Flo, but her phone doesn't work at that point. This is before she gets the replacement when she goes to the store where she works and she gets the advance and she gets a replacement phone, but she calls 911 on her broken phone and seems to get through. I, I hadn't even noticed that. I'll have to keep a, I'll have to keep an eye out in future watches. <laughs> I have it play, I have it playing muted in the background while we're recording this, so if it comes up and <laughs> comes and goes, I'll let you know. But <laughs> It's just one of those things you pick up after you've watched it three times. You know, I, I've been watching it a couple times as well, and it's just, I just thought it was one of those funny little uh, whoopsie moments, you know? <laughs> yeah. It, Continuity error. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, and is this also, when Hopper leaves, that's when he first asked Jonathan about what his dad's been up to because we still haven't seen his estranged father jonathan's estranged father because hopper's still kind of working under this idea that will's missing but part of him is thinking that it can be written off as some easy explanation yeah i mean at least i'm sure hopper hopes so you know he doesn't want this to be a big thing i don't think he wants a whole lot of trouble he just wants to kind of lay back in his easy sheriff gig you know and jonathan comes out and he's like hey let me go talk to lonnie and Hopper's like, no, you need to stay here. You need to take care of your mother. Let me do the cop stuff. And uh, he doesn't listen to that. 
Jonathan ends up going to Lonnie's later. Yeah, and then we learn uh, a short time later, we, we kind of jump back to the world of <clears throat> Eleven, and we see, or L, sorry, and we first learn of her addiction to Ego Waffles. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's wrong with that, though? I mean, Egos are delicious. I think it's an E, more than anything, it's an E.T. reference. Because yeah, in E.T., yeah. he, he finds E.T., and then he, he only feeds him the same thing every single day. Like, and, and it's the same idea where, like, they find E.T. in the woods, and they, they bring E.T. home, and they're hiding it from his hiding it from mom because they're afraid they'll get in trouble for being out, not necessarily having this strange thing in their house. Mm-hmm. And uh, they kind of feed the same thing over and over again because it's what mom won't notice. So it's a nice little nice little Spielberg reference moment. That's, yeah, that's cool. I mean, there's so many little references throughout this series. I love picking up on those. That's a, that's one I did not get, though. That's that's a good find. Yeah, and I think it's funny that the, the mom just doesn't go in this basement. No one in this family seems <laughs> to go into the, this basement because it's not like Elle is hidden somewhere. She's just, like, under a blanket in the basement. Right. It must not, like, the laundry room must not be down there. It must just be the kid's space, you know? Oh, my gosh, I didn't even think about that. But, yeah, you're right. So it's because it's like a finished basement. So you would think that more people than just him hang out down there. But maybe you're right. Maybe there's no – I assume that the laundry room was down there this whole time. Just That made sense to me, but maybe not. I mean, plus it's only been like two days. Maybe we're just between laundry days. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that'll be one of the plot driving – uh, devices there in episode four where uh you know, <laughs> she's gonna do some some whites and she finds a kid in the basement yes so during that same breakfast mike does this cover little thing where he lets nancy know that he's got something on her and i'm wondering if he's gonna use that later but this is when he's just like you know did you get a lot of studying done last night a little nod to the fact that steve was trying to sneak in when he was out trying to get well yeah yeah that's uh that's a good one that's great little nancy moments she's she's so good we'll get there but my favorite character has a lot of airtime in this thing because of nancy yeah yeah i can't wait to get to that but (laughs) taking our time Um, taking our time mike before he heads off to school you know he feeds her the ego waffle and then he asks 11 to basically crawl out the basement window come back around to the front door and then ask his mom to call for help and again she says no I think that's probably to protect herself, but probably more so to prevent Mike's family from being harmed. You know, it's, it's, uh, she saw what happened to Benny, who was obviously very nice and was trying to help her, and that didn't end up so well for him. So I think she's trying to, to, I think she's trying to protect Mike's family here in, you know, staying hidden, um, keeping them out of it as much as possible. Uh, there's really no way that Dr. Brenner's team can find her where she is as long as nobody brings it up on the phone, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then, not, then we go to the search for Will Byers, and this is where something we talked about in the last episode. We were like, do you think Hopper and Mrs. Byers hooked up? That's mm-hmm. something that the, the cops say to each other in the top yeah. of this episode. They kind of ask, would Hopper... Hopper is clearly more invested in the mis- in the disappearance of Will than the other sheriffs or his deputies can understand. And the one says to the other, "Didn't they use? Didn't they screw before?" And there's like this smirking <laughs> gesture where the guy's like, "Of course they screwed. Come on." <laughs> While well, he's been around the town. Yeah, yeah. Hopper's a ladies' man. Hopper's a ladies' man. I, I think it's. I think this stems back to his whole tortured soulness. But right now, I think he's just a ladies' man. Uh, something's got to fill the void and for him it's drinking women 
He's also the best. He's also he's also the best looking grown man, uh, doll character in this entire series, other than Winona Ryder, and I guess Elle's father figure. I don't know what to call him, but there's there's not there's not a lot of lookers in in the adult male department in this show. But Harbor, he's one of them. Oh, you're talking about uh, Dr. Brenner, older Ted Danson. Yeah, 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 older Ted Danson. Yes, Dr. Brenner, him, and then Dave Harbor, who plays Hopper. Right. Uh, those those two are like your two lookers, and you can't really like, you know, Brennan. So you got to go for Hopper. And our younger lookers, Nancy and Steve, uh, they're back together in school here. And your favorite, Barb, she is there as well. Steve's throwing a party because his parents are out of town, and Nancy, as well as Barb by extension, are invited. So it's kind of obvious from the get go that Steve's friends are assholes. There too, you know, they're in the hallway there with them as well, and they're kind of dicks. Um, and I think Nancy knows that you can kind of read her face pretty clearly and it shows that she's conflicted, but you know, she's, she's conflicted as well because she's, she's like, they're cool, but they're kind of assholes. And she's trying to figure out the balance of like, how can I be with Steve, but be associated with this shitty click, you know? Yeah. There's a great moment right before that gets there that I think is referencing the bigger storyline where Barb is quizzing Nancy about the science test that they have come up. And she says, uh, um, she says something like a molecule can pass through a piece of gold foil and enter into, and the answer is unoccupied space. And I feel like that might be, that's one of those nice little subversive references to what we've been seeing going on with these characters. There's this Mm -hmm. other side, there's this other that we know exists and that there's something that's passing between the two. Yeah. And I feel like this is one of those subtle little hints where the, where the characters are unknowingly referencing the larger narrative where she's, she only, she only, we only hear them ask one question. And it's a question that very clearly represents the idea of passing between two different fields hmm. and how that changes, how that changes an element and the things around it. So I was like, Oh, that's a clever little, just a clever little, little line right before they encounter with Steve. Yeah, that's well written. I think that's neat. And then yeah, yeah. So they they run to Steve. They're they're talking about the party, and that's when Jonathan walks in, and that's when you know Steve's friend is like, "Oh, that's that's depressing." And it cuts to Jonathan who is putting up a missing poster for Will on the bulletin board, and it is kind of sad. You know, it's it's this older kid who's maybe supposed to be at school right now, but he's not because he's putting up posters for this missing kid. Um. And Nancy is the only one that actually goes up to speak to him. So she goes over and, you know, she's just like, hey, you know, really sorry about what happened. It really sucks. Um, And then he's super awkward about it. And that's the first clue that we get that uh, Jonathan's got a crush on Nancy. Yeah, yeah. It is a weird moment because I couldn't figure out if how old he is compared to everybody else. (laughs) You know, like, there's this weirdness where I guess... The eighty-three was a year when kids would just work instead of go to school is a possibility because it seems because they are in school together. Yeah. Uh, because we we know this because he's into photography and stuff like that, which we kind of learn near the end of the episode. But that's kind of ties back into him being at the school. So they they are in the same class, but this moment almost seems like they've never interacted before. Like in all of their time in school, they've never interacted up until this moment. Yeah, I mean, he seems like he's an outsider. You know, he's low income, which is probably something to start. And then he's he's kind of odd. He's probably pretty quiet. He seems pretty reserved. He likes photography. He'd rather be probably behind the lens than in front of it. So I don't think they interact a whole lot. But because Nancy and Jonathan's brothers are friends, she probably feels like 
the right thing to do is to go and say something. She probably all, you know, she's probably also egged on by the guilt for hanging out with those assholes or kind of making fun of him during this hard time. Yeah, it's uh, it's weird. I, I, let me ask this. Do you think if this movie was made around the early 2000s, Jonathan would be played by Edward Furlong? Because every time I look at him, I just see that character from Detroit Rock City that Edward Furlong plays. And I think it's a pretty perfect casting. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of creepy. He has that look kind of like Evan Peters, where you're kind of typecast in these weird roles where you're this uh, socially awkward and maybe disturbed teen. So, yeah, I could totally see him being cast as Edward Furlong maybe uh, a couple years ago. But that said, I think Jonathan really fits because he's not a terrible looking kid. He's just kind of gaunt. You know, it looks like his social status and uh, perhaps the time that he has for personal hygiene is low <laughs> so that kind of puts him on the outside and um yeah I don't, I don't really see him mingling with the cool kids very often it's a strange thing because i feel like there's it, hawkins is such a small town that all of these people obviously see each other all the time but it's just the first few times that we see jonathan and steve and everyone else there's like it's such a division between them that it's hard to imagine how they've all been in this town their entire lives and never forcibly interacted with one another yeah well you know it's a midwest town and i'm sure you've probably experienced the same thing that i have that <laughs> while you're younger uh maybe the difference in wealth and interests don't necessarily matter quite as much when you're a kid so you know it's entirely possible that jonathan was friends with a lot of these people when they were younger but as you grow up and like you start to get more distant because you have troubles at home like he did with lonnie and his mom uh and you know being able to afford to go out with friends after football games and stuff that kind of separates people. And, you know, maybe he's just sort of withdrawn in that way. And he's kind of into his music. He's into photography. He's probably a lot like us, honestly, you know, we, I don't know about you, but for me, like I was a fairly social guy, but then that, you know, there's that part of you that like just wants to get away from everybody and just listen to music and relate to that instead of real people for a little while. You're absolutely right, and we get into that. We got into that a little bit the last episode with him listening, that call back to him and Will listening to music together. Uh, so then what, what happens next in our story? So we see Mike rides home, and, oh, he skips out on the rest of the day to be with Elle. Right, he, yeah, he never actually makes it to school, which for uh, Dustin and Lucas was sort of like, Oh, shit. <laughs> like, either they knew something happened with Eleven or their second friend got disappeared too. I kind of like the ambiguity of that. Cause like you kind of think about both things. Um, but it, yeah, you're right. Mike goes back home. He pulls into the driveway, goes back downstairs and, uh, you know, L is, is still there. So the parents are away. I'm not sure if the mom's working or if she's doing errands. I'm assuming she's just has to be doing errands because she has the kid, the, the youngest daughter with her. So while they're home alone, Elle is sort of investigating the living room. She's looking around. She's looking at the photos of the family. And then Mike shows her the lazy boy chair. Yeah, that's that's one of those cute kid moments again, where you're the kind of the uh, the innocence of youth where it's like, oh, she can be amazed by just a comfortable chair. Yeah, like, oh, wow, like, this is fun. And the, I, there's there's this one moment that I actually I was just thinking about. She she's looking at these photos of the family and, you know, she's kind of tracing her fingers over the faces and she's looking at them and she recognizes Mike. And then she pauses over Nancy 
and she says the word pretty. She's she's just remarking on Nancy's looks, and she recognizes that she's pretty. And that's strange to me because, you know, what Eleven is actually aware of socially is super sporadic. You know, she knows the concept of pretty, but not a promise or a friend. She doesn't know those words, but she knows when something is attractive. Do you have any idea, like, why that might be? No, I don't, actually. What are your theories? I don't know. It's hard to tell. It's because we know so little about her background at this point, and we pick up a little more as this episode goes on. But we just don't know that much right now. We know that at some point she was at this laboratory and we don't know how long she was there. It's hard to say. I just think it's a weird thing and it's something that I'm keeping in mind as I watch. Uh, yeah, I think it's one of those things you may just need a few more episodes to kind of fully appreciate or uh, grasp what they're going for. Right. So in the meantime, Brenner, Dr. Brenner older Ted Danson, he raids the buyer's homestead. Nobody's home at this point, so he and his team show up in a white van, and in their hazmat suits, they sort of just walk around the house and the shed in the back, and that's where Brenner finds this weird biological goo oozing from the walls. It looks a lot like the stuff that they found in the lower levels of the laboratory, so you kind of have to wonder what this is. Um, We know Hopper took a look in the shed as well, but he didn't see this. So this, I don't know if this is new or if it's just now starting to leak from the walls because Brenner is present. It's kind of hard to tell, but it's this weird moving goop. And uh, who knows? What What do you think that even is? What is this? Uh, the goop? Yeah. I think that just goes back to the idea of the other. I think it's just, it's, it's one of those awesome wow shots because it shows you something but doesn't tell you anything where you're just like, oh, this could be anything. I think that it's the source or at least the connecting point between our world and wherever this thing comes from. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that as well. You know, looking back at that gooey mess that's on the wall in the bottom of the laboratory it kind of looks to me like a portal of sorts, you know, almost like a womb. I don't think that that's wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's true. I have absolutely no idea of knowing whether or not that's right. But at first, I just thought it was like sort of like uh, one of those alien nests. And, you know, this is just uh, some sort of place where the monster or whatever this thing is came from. But, you know, then I thought about it deeper and it kind of looked like there was it kind of went into the wall. It wasn't necessarily just on it, but actually went into it. And in between some of the, the tangled vines and, and whatever ever of this black gunk, it looked like this is possibly a portal of some kind, which goes back to your point where maybe that is kind of the halfway point or the threshold of these two worlds that we're starting to get a hold of here. Oh, yeah, it has something... To, I definitely think it has something to do with the events happening in town, I mean, that's pretty obvious. It's just a matter of, like, is it a man-made portal or is it something that appeared that we're trying to understand? You know what I mean? Like, that's my biggest question. Like, is this something that Brenner built, found, or created? I don't think it's either. I think the way that they were investigating when his team was down there was this was something that just appeared. You know, maybe it was a result of one of his experiments, but... I don't think he expected it. And I think that's kind of what's putting him in this panic and making him do all these rash things throughout the town where everything is sleepy and everything's going to be noticed at some point. He's not being 
overly cautious about decisions he's making to you know take out people or to investigate things and invade spaces so i'm not sure what it is yet but i'm excited to find out definitely so back at the house mike and 11 are still just kind of like hanging out and then mike's mom comes home so he rushes her upstairs and tells her to hide in the closet and again this is like claustrophobic to the max and this time we get a flashback that gives her a little more background and she's seen dragged away from dr brenner and she keeps screaming papa 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 so let me ask you this are you comfortable in saying that dr brenner is 11's dad no no <laughs> no i don't think so at all i think that Papa's probably just part. I mean, I, I I guess it's it's possible, but we have no evidence that he's ever been married or that he feels anything for her whatsoever. And I mean, I understand that there's there's the argument that I guess if he's a scientist, he was trying to protect his daughter, and then it kind of went away from him. But I feel like it's so in the first episode when we see Benny get killed, it's that woman enters and her thugs are there, and it's like they do it. Brenner doesn't do it himself, mm-hmm. so he's not the guy that gets his hands dirty. And it's hard for me to imagine a guy who seems so careful to not be directly involved in things would put his own child on the on a block, knowing what's happening to her and kind of being the administrator of it. I just don't get that vibe from him, mm-hmm. but I do get the idea that a good way to control young minds is to be a father figure. So I think that it's he's a father figure to her and i don't know if it's a result of the testing or where they found her or how she came to be in this experiment or these ongoing experiments that he's doing but i feel like the the papa angle is his way of trying to get her to trust him in moments when she might not trust everything else around her Hmm, that's interesting i think that's a good thought so she's kind of left here and mike goes downstairs and talks with his mom his mom again tries to do the right thing and she's just trying to be open and have an open dialogue with her kids about whatever's going on. She knows that he's upset about Will. She doesn't really know the half of it, but she thinks she understands, and that gives Mike an out. And then eventually, when Dustin and Lucas come back over, they're upstairs and they're discussing what to do. And again, Lucas, kind of the fearmonger of the group, he rushes to go tell Mike's mom. He's he's like, we, we can't be wrapped up in this. We're going to get in trouble. We should just come clean and have Mike's mom do something to get 11 help. That's when she starts using her powers a little more. And uh, she slams the door closed, slams the door closed. And then they all turn around. They're like, Whoa. And we see the, and we see the nosebleed for the first, for the, well, I guess not necessarily, maybe not the first time, but we see it kind of established as this is something that happens when she's using her powers. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's kind of a trope. I think in a lot of series where people have powers or, Um, they have some sort of mental ability. It puts such a strain on their head that I don't know if it's giving them an embolism or or what exactly it's doing, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's causing her to overload. And the only way to really show that with a human being is to show blood seeping from their nose. Well, you know, you're right. It is kind of a trope, but the question that is kind of set up here that, that I don't know that they, they definitely don't answer in this episode is, the extent of the damage being done because in some in some cases where we use this this trope to express kind of the stress the mental stress of doing something using psychokinesis is the idea that it's causing their brain to hemorrhage and they can only do it so many times or to such an extent before they'll kill themselves 
um, because of the, the stress of that. And I think that we get a little bit of that here, but the answer that we aren't getting is, is it a kind of hurt where she is recovering from it? Or is it, is she only have a finite amount of power and every time she uses it, she's dying a little bit. That is an interesting thought. I I don't think she even seems to know because if she did, then I don't think she would be using her powers to shut the door so willingly. <laughs> well, I think that she understands that it, obviously she understands that it hurts her, but again, we just we just haven't seen enough to know how much she understands or how much anyone understands about her powers. I, I think that we're starting to understand that she can do a bunch of different things with her mind, but there's definitely no definition to kind of the boundaries of her powers. Like I can't tell you she can do this, but she can't do this. Like there's not there's no real there's not a lot of clarity in that yet. We just know that she's gifted. Yeah, that's why. I'm assuming, you know, her powers are ramping up. We're, we're seeing a little bit more and more. And now that more people are aware that she uses the powers, I think that's going to be a, a much heavier plot device in the episodes going forward. But we'll see. So much of this show is going to be. We'll see. That's that's why we're doing a podcast. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so then what, what happens next in, in this particular episode? Oh, there is that moment. There is the moment where she points out knowing who Will is, or at least recognizing Will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't believe we almost glossed over that. Somehow she recognizes Will. Kind of a major plot point in this. <laughs> How, what are you getting from this? Uh familiarity i don't think that she uh, the timeline tells us that there's no way that she knows will exactly. um but there's a there's a familiarity there i don't know if it's that they passed each other at some point or she has seen a photo of him perhaps you know i don't really know still don't understand what exactly happened to will so the i mean the possibilities are endless but the idea that they are connected in some way is pretty evident I have a feeling that she has a connection through the other, as we're referring to it in the show. Yeah, I just like that makes the most sense. The other, <laughs> I it's kind of like um, I don't know if you're familiar with Harry Potter, but perhaps some of the listeners are. When Lord Voldemort attacked Harry as a child, he sort of imparted a bit of him within Harry, and that allowed Harry to sort of see both sides of things. He would have dreams. Sometimes he would have just like blackouts where he would just start seeing things from Voldemort's point of view as the years went on. So I'm wondering if there's something similar sort of going on here. I wonder if within the laboratory, Eleven was subjected to this other. And as a result of that, there was a bit of transference. And through that transference, she can at least feel that Will is familiar. You know, that maybe Will is somewhere within the other or taken by the other or however you'd like to refer to it. And she sort of has a feeling about that. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I, I like that idea. So, so so our story moves forward, and we see that Hopper goes to investigate Benny's death, and they kind of come to that conclusion, like, Benny's, Benny's been murdered. Or at least Hopper puts together that Benny's been murdered. And this is kind of an important moment, because up to this, we've been, we've been given the impression that Hopper is this small-town sheriff who doesn't really give a shit. Hmm. But in this moment, when he's sitting there investigating, uh, looking at Benny... Who, who, as he explains, is a friend of his. Uh, he's kind of he's struck with the notion that he probably didn't kill himself. And in that moment, we learn, okay, so there's a, there, another layer of Hopper has been revealed, where it's like clearly he's not some I don't give a shit cop. He's actually pretty intelligent. He's actually he he's actually maybe more talented for than his job commands, and that kind of feeds his loath the way he's kind of loathsome towards it. Right. The one investigator or deputy asked him, 
you must feel like a big city cop again, huh, Chief? And so that kind of gives us a little background on him. So at some point, you know, he, he left the town. He grew up there, obviously, but he left the town. He started a family. He was a big city cop, at least somewhere, maybe Chicago, you know, something Midwest, but much bigger than Hawkins. And he comes back. And that's, you know, his next line is, I mostly dealt with strangers back then. So there's there's an emotional wear here. Obviously, like, he's looking at his friend that's dead. And whether or not he knows that it was actually suicide or not, he's having a rough week. Yeah, he's having a rough week, and he he's kind of... But I think we see the gear shifting now, because this whole time he's been like, eh, this, Joyce is overreacting to this Will thing, it's this isolated incident, and now there's... Now Benny's death, it's like, okay, now... Now it seems like things are kind of starting to come together. Now there's not just one thing, there's two, and it's pretty hard to think that they aren't connected in some way because of the nature of this quiet, sleepy town. So it's kind of a great moment where uh, we're a little over halfway into episode two, and people outside of the immediate circle are starting to kind of get involved in the central narrative. You know, Hopper, his his deputies, and everyone else they kind of interact with are pulled slightly more into the central story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's shown when he's he's doing interviews with people that are you know familiar with Benny, asking if they've seen anything unusual. You know, people that see him on a daily basis because he has regulars at the restaurant, and that's when he finds out about Eleven. Uh, one of the the customers at the restaurant mentioned to Hopper that there was a kid, what looked like a, a young boy, there yesterday, and he thinks it's Will, and so that's kind of where he's going with that. But I, you know. Obviously, it wasn't Will, and it was Eleven. So I think at some point, one way or another, he's going to find out that that wasn't Will and that there's somebody else involved. And whether or not he thinks that the kid was involved in Benny's death, that's going to be something to investigate. Definitely, definitely. Uh, and it was kind of nice to have this moment where Hopper kind of transitions into work mode. Mm. Right before we go to the what I would call the beginning of the main portion of the episode, which is kind of the last uh 20 minutes or so which is kind of split between two different scenarios one is hopper's three hopper's investigation into will's disappearance which leads him to kind of first kind of enter the facility get get close to the facility the questionable facility we have nancy and barb going to their party which is probably the 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 meat of what happens in the back moments and then we have a little bit more with the boys and what's going on with them, mm-hmm. and, and, and Joyce. But really, the back half of this episode is about Joyce and Nancy and Barb. Yeah, yeah. Before we get there, though, I do want to mention again that Jonathan goes to Lonnie's, and this this is when we get like a, a clear picture of this guy that everybody's been talking about. You know, Lonnie is somebody that's recognized throughout the town. It's not just within the buyer's homestead that he's talked about or with Hopper. You know, people are like, oh, Lonnie's kid? You know, Lonnie is known, and he may not be liked, but he's familiar in the area, but he's since moved. So Jonathan goes to Lonnie's house to see if Will is there, and he's not, but you kind of get that um, that pushback that makes you think, well, maybe Lonnie isn't, maybe he's a kind of a tool, but maybe he's not all in the wrong, because it doesn't seem that um, maybe Joyce is the best mother either. So there's definitely that kind of like post-divorce contention between the two, but it gives a little contrast to the situation and it shows that there is two sides of this. And even though Lonnie's kind of a douchebag and really not a great dad, um, that maybe a lot of the problems that Jonathan and will have had with their parents weren't all Lonnie's fault. Also, he hates Hopper. Yeah. Hates Hopper. I'm sure he was arrested by Hopper more than once. 
No, definitely. And I, it's just one of those moments where you're like, Hopper is a ladies' man. You know what I mean? I feel like every every time we see a man get mad at Hopper, I'm like, he's probably been with his lady. <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right. <laughs> so, yeah, getting back to Nancy and Barb, um, they end up at Steve's house for this party. And uh, Barb really doesn't want to go. Um, this is definitely not her scene. Time and time again, she's shown that she's pretty straight-laced, and she just wants everybody to just stick to the plan, you know? But uh, they end up there anyway, and Barb is just completely unimpressed and disappointed with everything that Nancy is doing to get Steve's attention. Yes, the greatest character in the series so far. Barb makes a brilliant comeback in this episode as just being sick of Nancy's bullshit. <laughs> and it's great. It's great. There's a great moment in the car where she asked Nancy if this is, she's wearing a new bra. And then she's like, this is, this is so stupid. It's the best line of the series so far, because for a show that for a town where all these horrible things are, well, I guess I mean, I assume the news about Benny's death hasn't gotten out yet at this point. I feel like they, they, this isn't making news yet because none of the other characters outside of Hopper reference it. So this isn't in headlines yet. Mm-hmm. But there's still Nancy's little brother's best friend, arguably, has disappeared, and she gives so few shits about this fact. <laughs> like her and Steve, they all just go on living their life. And Barb never references the fact that Will's missing, but you get the idea that Barb's like, this is not the time, Nancy. And part of that's because of the Will thing, I'm sure. The bigger portion is like she's this responsible do-gooder schoolgirl. But again, it's like just like the last episode, like Barb knows what she's talking about. Barb is the one who should survive everything because she's doing the right thing. And every, every time we see her, she's always the good soul. Mm -hmm. Um, doesn't really work out for her that way, but we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. It's not, we aren't quite to that part of the episode yet, but it is, it is kind of this important thing. Cause I mean, we can just talk about this whole Nancy sequence with Steve in general, because it, it kind of goes on and on and it intercuts with a whole bunch of other stuff. But basically she has this, Steve has this shitty party at his house that I would the kind of party I was never invited to in high school. Yeah, where the cool kids, uh, the cool guys, and the cool girls get together and they have sex and they drink their parents' booze and they just kind of have fun. And but there's only four of them, which is kind of hilariously sad and very representative of what it's like in a small town where people are like we're gonna have a party and then it's like the same four kids that you go to high school with every. <laughs> Uh, they try to get Barbara drinking and it doesn't go well and we see Jonathan out in the woods looking for Will in a, in a sequence that doesn't make a lot of sense like he's yeah. he's looking for clues with his camera at night in the woods <laughs> photos that aren't going to lead to anything it, like, it's, it's just picture of branches photos. yeah he's just taking photos of things in the dark it, it's very <laughs> it's very strange behavior like it, there's no question that what he's doing is weird and then it gets weirder when he stumbles upon Nancy and Steve and kind of not helping his case of being the class weirdo. Mm-hmm. He stays and takes photos of them in a very pervy, creepy kind of, I'm going to stay to myself here in the woods and not make myself known kind of way. Yeah. And no one else notices because it's the eighties and that's how these stories work. Yeah. He, he kind of shows that he's a bit of a voyeur and that's a weird thing to be, especially when you're in the middle of trying to figure out what happened to your missing brother. Yeah, it's it's strange, and it's also weird on the part of the kids because, again, none of them even mention, like, isn't it weird that that kid went missing from our small town where nothing bad ever happens? They all just kind of are going about their lives, and Nancy, of all people, should have at least some concern, and Barb never references it, but she does kind of have, like, this, we shouldn't be here, like, yeah. we shouldn't be 
we shouldn't be breaking from the norm. And Nancy just does not care. She wants that Steve so bad. <laughs> yeah, she tells her mother that they were going to that. You know, it's like the benefit oh, it, or the rally. It's the classic. It's the classic. You tell your parents you're coming to my house. I'll tell my parents yeah. I'm going to your house. But yeah, there's there's a. I don't think it's a rally. I think it's like a like a candlelight vigil for Will at the stadium. Like it's like a get together. Yeah. To... Well, that's the excuse, and and I bring that up because Nancy's mother is the only one who thinks that Will's disappearance means that something bad is happening in the town, and everybody needs to hunker down until they figure it out. Yeah. And everybody else is like, well, we'll just go on with our day to day. Like that thing happened to the buyer's kid. That's a shame, and. Nancy's mom is just like, you guys aren't going anywhere. <laughs> You're staying here. I'm not going to let you guys be the next ones to go, dis- you know, go missing. Yeah, it's 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 dumb. <laughs> it's a cool it's a cool series of sequences because I feel like it, it nails the kind of the tone of 80s party movies in a way with the Steve and Nancy kind of going off upstairs and the cute like, I'm just going to go up there to change with them and stuff like it's it's all very well done, yeah. but it's it's frustratingly so because you're like we have to get through all of this so that we know the eventual reemergence of the of the strangeness for lack of a better word is going to happen but all these kind of tropey things have to fall into place and it is it's one of those weird moments where you're like you're enjoying it but you're like i know where this is going i know where this is going from the moment it begins uh and you kind of have to sit through it but the cool thing is that it's intercut with this with the the captivating and increasingly compelling insanity of Joyce. <laughs> She's kind of <laughs> going down this rabbit hole of despair. She's going a little bit nuts. Earlier in the episode, she starts rearranging furniture so that she could sit closer to the new phone that she bought. And, uh, and she gets another phone call. Eventually, you know, she's been sitting there all night. She kind of falls asleep and then she's woken up to another phone call. She immediately answers it and she hears that breathing again. And, Again, that thing happens where it fries her phone. She's like, fuck. And then the lights start going haywire. Yeah, the, he kind of does this. It kind of alludes to the idea that Will is somehow able to communicate through the light or something. I guess I want to believe what Joyce believes, and that's that Will is trying to communicate with her. But there's really, there's really no evidence that she's not just crazy because... Obviously, there has been something going on with the power, and you want to believe that it's connected, but it's the story is 100% relying on you believing what Joyce believes. And I do, so I'm like, I'm in. Like, okay, let's, how do we build on this? I want to believe that, too, but this is Winona Ryder, who almost exclusively plays kind of batshit crazy women, at least in my experience of her filmography. Yeah, yeah, she does She does have a tendency to do that. I feel like the, the thing that's new about this character for Winona is just kind of the lower class, the lower middle classness of it. It kind of adds this level of desperation that's already inherent in her character Mm -hmm. that makes you, it's hard to take it. I think it divides people. I think some people are going to be like, they immediately relate to the struggles that she has and other people. It's hard not to be like, it seems like a lot of your problems are created by yourself. (laughs) And now you're in this worse situation. And the fact that, all these other things in your life you haven't been able to kind of take care of the way you should are now compounding your central problem. You don't have enough money. You live you live below your you live below your needs. You don't have this community of people around you to help you. And then your son goes missing, and all of those things get a lot worse because of that. But that thing becomes so much more extreme and difficult to deal with because of all these other factors. Um, but there is a great moment 
where you see Joyce in her house after the phone kind of gives out on her for a second time and she, she kind of collapses and cries and it's, it's it's another beautiful moment where you're like, holy shit, give her all the awards. <laughs> like, like she's again the dramatic anchor to this episode in a big way. She definitely is. I mean, nobody is more upset than she is. And for well, there's reason. also well, I also think that a big part of what makes the show so exciting in these first two episodes is that there's a lot of ideas presented without being fleshed out or explained or defined so there's a lot of moments in this episode in the last episode where you, your brain is kind of open to endless possibilities mm-hmm. and Joyce serves as a reminder that no matter what those possibilities are there's one thing that is for certain and it is that a woman has lost her son yeah and she's reeling from that and the other characters as much as they might be intrigued by the new things around them they're also all trying to deal with this the same tragic moment and Joyce is our reminder as things become more interesting and our curiosity grows that it's all born out of heartache. And I think that that's really important to remember. And I think it keeps the show grounded in a way that makes everything else a little bit more, a little bit tastier mm-hmm. because it's like a sense of levity to what is otherwise a very sad story. And then things go nuts. The episode sort of <laughs> culminates as all of these things start happening at the same time. So the phone gives out on Joyce and Joyce is crying and then she sees the lights start flickering and it's just the one light. It's the light in the hallway that goes down to the boys' rooms. So she kind of follows it down the hallway and then she sees lights flickering. She sees lights flickering underneath the doorway of Will's room. Obviously she goes inside and the lights are going nuts and the radio is blasting. Should I stay or should I go by the clash? Which is a flashback to, you know, it's a callback to that time where, Jonathan and Will are listening to the clash and he's like, do you like this? And Will's like, yeah, I do. He's like, good. You should hate your dad and love the clash. So, you know, things are going nuts and she's like, what the hell is happening here? And that's when the fucking hands come out of the walls. Yeah, that's when we get, well, I mean, first and foremost, Nightmare on Elm Street. Exactly. That's, I mean, that's the obvious reference. And uh, there's a little bit of that in the title of this episode. What is it? The Weirdo on Maple Street, which is a call. Yeah, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to that, but obvious callback to Nightmare on Elm Street. And I think that it looks like they did it the same exact way, which is to replace the wall with like plastic and have a person on the other side that leans into it. Yeah. Multiple people though. It wasn't just one set of hands, it was multiple sets of hands. Yeah, and this is what makes me question the source of the messages Joyce is receiving. Because is it Will? Is it the monster that took Will? Is it another entity of some kind that is preying on the fact Praying in the predatory sense about on the idea that she is seeking her son, so she's easy to be lured into a trap of some kind. Mm. There's, uh, I don't really know, but it is, there's that, and then counterbalance with that is what happens to poor old Barb, which is kind of up in the air, but right. well, Barb is screwed. This is, this is <laughs> weird, and there's, there are a lot of little tiny pieces to this that I, I tend to think about. So, Barb cut her thumb while. Uh, well, she cut her thumb after being pressured into doing a shotgun of a beer. So she slices her thumb open with a knife. She goes inside to take care of it. In the meantime, the kids go rowdy. They jump in the pool. Then Nancy goes upstairs with Steve to, quote, change. And Nancy's like, or Barb's like, this isn't you. And Nancy's just like, go home, Barb. So Barb doesn't go home because she's a good person and she can't leave her friend there because you never know what's going to happen. So she goes outside. She's holding her thumb, which is still bleeding profusely, and it's dripping into the pool. And this is one of those moments that you often see in like 
ocean-based horror movies where, you know, the blood drips into the pool and you're like, shit, well, here come the sharks, right? Not quite. We've got Jonathan in the woods. He's taking photos of everything that's happening here. He's taking creep shots of Nancy and Steve in the bedroom. And he's also taking some photos of Barb, who's looking very sullen sitting on the diving board. And he's kind of silently commiserating with her in that way. You know, he's bummed out because he has a crush on Nancy, who's getting it on with Steve. And Barb is upset because she also lost Nancy to Steve, in a way. And as Jonathan is, like, either rewinding his film or, you know, hears something in the woods, he's distracted, and when he looks back... Barb is gone. She's gone. She's gone, and we don't know whether or not anyone saw it happen because, you know, Jonathan's been in the woods, but he leaves kind of before this, right before this moment, but he was taking photos. So there's a chance that maybe there's something kind of still, uh, uh, there's still some opportunity there for the story to build on that, and I think it probably will because that's how this this show seems to like to play out is it likes to leave these little breadcrumbs that it'll come back to. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I think I think there's a chance Barb is where Will is. I think that's almost a given at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is whether or not either one is alive. So yeah, it's it's hard to say. She just disappears, and now we've got two missing people, and they're both people that Nancy knows. So whether she likes to or not, she's going to have to get involved. She's going to have to start paying attention and figure out what is happening. In the meantime, Hazy Shade of Winter kind of plays it out. This is a song by the Bengals. Uh, this is one of the better song placements, I think. This is much better than Toto. <laughs> and uh, that kind of, yeah, that, that plays out this episode, which all in all was, was kind of exciting. It starts ramping things up, and I think it's really going to start hitting hard in episode three. I think we're really going to get a big look at what exactly is happening in this town. Yeah, my biggest question so far isn't necessarily, like, the, uh, the big questions. Like, I don't really care about having the monster explained to me. I don't really care about the portal. I, what I'm most interested in is knowing that there's eight episodes. Mm-hmm. So we are uh, officially a quarter of the way through. And all we've done so far is is develop threads. Like nothing is connected yeah. yet. So there's not a lot of time to pull everything back together. And that's without considering the need to further flesh things out to the point where they can be connected. Cause we all like literally all we have is about two dozen stems. Uh, the, the boys have a storyline. Nancy has a storyline. Joyce has a story. Jonathan has a story. Hopper has a story. Brennan and the, the flashbacks to Brennan and L that's, that's its own story. So let, let, just those storylines and there are interconnected stories in between there. That's six different stories that we have started. And that's not including like what the monster is, where it comes from, where is Will, who or what took Will, what's happened to him, what's happening to Barb. So we have a lot of things right now that it's like, it's fun to sit here and kind of, what could all this lead to? Where, where could it all be going? But we have to get so much further before we can actually tie, before there could be any kind of satisfying resolution or connection made between the two of them because the show is taking its precious time that I, my biggest fear is a rush near the end. Mm-hmm. Or it's going to have to really surprise us out of left field in order to kind of tie all these elements together in a way that I feel you can meaningfully wrap up in eight episodes. And I know that everyone says the sequel or the next season, which they haven't officially confirmed, but they've more or less confirmed. Netflix has never not given something a second season. <laughs> I know that the, the Duffer brothers have said that it will be a sequel, mm-hmm. but I've also read that it will be set at least a year in the future. So we're going to cover enough 
things in the next six episodes to leave us with an ability to jump a year in the future. So I'm just curious about how we're going to pull it all together. Yeah, me too. It is. I mean, this is a sort of short season by modern standards. Most go somewhere around 13 episodes. And, you know, it makes me think like maybe this show could have been done in like four or five more like a say a BBC series. But it's hard to say because we we don't know what's going to happen. It seems that a lot of things are happening all at once, you know, very near in the future. Now that we have the character development out of the way, we've got to be getting into something juicy. So it's it's hard to say for now, but I, I like the pacing so far. I don't mind character development, and I think that's why shows like this tend to be very popular because you get really invested from the start, which you know, usually gives credence to sharing and that sort of viral discussion that goes on about shows like this. And it makes you want to watch more. So it's to get people hooked. You know, you want to develop a relationship with these characters early on and you want to give it a little levity and you want to, you know, put a little dash of everything that you possibly can in there to attract as many people as possible and then hit them with the good stuff. True, true. I, I mean, I'm curious. I do think that the shot of Barb sitting over the pool is maybe... I was trying to think of what was my favorite shot of the week. Mm-hmm. I'm torn. I have two. It's, it's Barb sitting on the side of the pool. It's kind of this beautifully lit little shot that teases what we see at the top of episode three. And then the first shot, the shot of Joyce sitting around her lamp as it starts to light up. And I think we'll see that shot a couple more times Yeah. Um, in different ways. But it's, it's a great effect that lends itself to some beautiful cinematography i agree with that so the last thing that i have on this episode is what you referred to earlier with the title and obviously there was that kind of um clear homage to the nightmare on elm tree with the wall but then there's the title as well so this the title here of this episode is the weirdo on maple street um this is maple street i believe is the street where mike lives and the weirdo is L, I think. I, I could be wrong in this. I don't have a firm grasp of the geography and layout of the town, but I think that's what we're getting at here. And that's a 1984 movie, Nightmare on Elm Street. And then in 1988, there was another movie called The House on Carroll Street. This is a, probably a little bit of a lesser known movie, but it was a thriller in which a female character knows something that they shouldn't and they're on the run. So, you know, you can kind of tie both of those things in here. We have this sinister dreamlike monster that's apparently taking people just like in the nightmare on Elm street. But you also have this character 11 who knows more than she's letting on. And she's on the run from people that want to prevent her from getting that out. Yeah. Um, they are both, they're both, good callback titles and i think that there's we already touched on the nightmare on elm street bit too um i think we'll see that happen a few more times these guys like to fit as many references as possible into each into each episode i feel like and the titles is just kind of a fun way to do that a little bit more gratuitously but it also kind of teases you as to what to look for shot wise and i'm not as familiar with the other film that they reference, so I'm sure that there are some shots and things like that that I don't get, but I know when I'm on Elm Street front to back, and there are plenty of examples of that film being used as a guide to how to shoot different sequences in this this film. I think the Duffer Brothers had good taste. Yeah, basically. I actually, fun fact of the week that I learned, we can end on this note, is that to get the look of this right, the Duffer Brothers went to a film archive and they pulled a bunch of different 80s film prints and they scanned them into their computer not to lift the look of the film, but actually to lift the scratches and dust 
and kind of the 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 grain of film stock from the 1980s so that they could overlay it over the digital video that they shot to make the show to give it the look of the 80s wow that's pretty cool actually yeah 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 i mean you know you always read about i, I just got a blu-ray of the film taking a pelham one two three which is a gorgeous 4k restoration of the 1970s film so you usually think of scanning as like scanning the entire thing and instead they just scanned it for the grain of the film stock itself and then took that as an overlay interesting very cool uh i recently read that the soundtrack for stranger things is actually going to be put out on vinyl and digitally i think it's actually on itunes right now as an exclusive so if you have apple music you can check that out you can buy it and download it i have it it's fun we could start using some of the music if we needed to maybe i want to be careful with that <laughs> yeah don't be don't be scared uh so that's so that's it for this episode and then so what's the next episode called we can kind of tease it up next episode is called holly jolly holly jolly which is clever I, I you know just from the the preview image that you can see on netflix i think that's kind of clever it's clever and we know that we're near christmas and i don't know that we're going to get to christmas before the series is up unless we start doing some time jumps because it yeah. feels like we're still pretty far away but we know it's christmas season yeah it's it's getting there it's still football season so it's sometime in the fall school's probably only recently kicked back in so i'm guessing this is did they, have they shown any dates i think this is sometime in maybe october november there's a date at the very first episode at the beginning of the first episode i think it's maybe it's october and then we, we're jumping we're moving forward yeah november november 6 1983 was the date so yeah we are we are getting close Alrighty. well i guess that wraps it up for episode two that's yeah it's episode two if you have any feedback or notice anything we didn't you can reach out to us on twitter we have a twitter account set up called find will buyers individually we are at jacob tender and at james d shotwell we'll be back with episode three of stranger things and thanks for listening <laughs>